Welcome to another podcast of the Apologist Bookshelf. Gary Zacharias here. I'm going to continue with a chapter that I started last time from the book Understanding the Faith by Jeff Myers. And he's got a chapter called, Is God a Mean Bully? And he uh, references, of course, uh, Richard Dawkins, who just lays all sorts of uh, blame on the uh, Old Testament and New Testament God for all sorts of things. But they, uh, Myers, uh, Jeff Myers is the author. He tackles four questions. One is, did God command genocide and does God hate homosexuals? So we talked about that one in the last podcast, but that was only half the chapter. I want to finish with the last two questions. Does the Bible endorse slavery and is the Bible oppressive to women? So Let's take a look at that. Is slavery in the Bible? Sure it is. Abraham had slaves. He even had a child by one of them, Hagar, when his wife insisted on it. But Myers points out very clearly, and I think really importantly, that it's not the same kind of slavery like we think of with the antebellum South in America. Actually, that term that, that we see as slave in the Bible or servant emphasizes dependency, not ownership. Now, Myers points out slavery has, has been everywhere and all times throughout history, but what's different is the Bible emphasizing that everyone bears the image of God. And he goes back into the Old Testament. He shows that Job recognized his bondservants were just as much image bearers of God as he was, and that he'd have to answer to God if he mistreated them. Look in Job 31. Plus, the Old Testament law has all sorts of provisions for the care and protection of slaves. You see that in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Uh, I'll go ahead and just give you some chapters real quickly here. Leviticus 19, 22, and 25. Deuteronomy 5, 15, 16, and 21. Well, we meet, of course, slavery in the New Testament as well, but it's not what you think of. Again, it's not like the antebellum South. Um, and what's interesting is the way Paul deals with them. In Romans 16, 9, he greets slaves by referring to them using terms of equality, like kinsmen, fellow prisoners, fellow workers. Uh, in the New Testament, believers are supposed to worship together, greet each other with a holy kiss. Equality with slaves was pretty radical for this time. And uh, Myers references Aristotle, who thought humans were slaves, but some humans were slaves by nature. And everywhere in the New Testament, we see that radical equality of slaves. All people are one in Christ, no matter what their role is in life. That's Galatians 3.28, 1 Corinthians 12.13, Colossians 3.11. Paul commands that the slave Onesimus be treated as a brother by Philemon. You can see that in verse 16. Revelation 18, verses 11 to 13. That area condemns treating humans as cargo. That echoes Ezekiel 27.13. 1 Timothy 1.9-10 condemns kidnappers, people who grabbed others and forced them into slavery. But why would the Bible not expressly and universally condemn slavery? Because it really doesn't. And so Myers has five points that he brings up on that. One, first of all, Christianity didn't invent slavery. Almost every society at that time had slaves. It was universal. Secondly, put the biblical discussion, he says, in its cultural context. I mean, that's different than the way we see it today. In the ancient world, Slavery came about pretty much because of war and poverty, not skin color. So that's something to think about. How was slavery in Israel different? Well, people could enter into slavery. Why? 
to achieve financial objectives. There was no bank. They couldn't get a loan back then to buy a piece of property. So they might go to work as a quote-unquote slave for a particular period of time that was agreed upon with the property's owner. That was not chattel slavery. That wasn't forced servitude. In fact, banning that this kind of slavery would have made it impossible for poor people to advance economically. And then secondly, the laws of Israel were really specific at how to treat slaves with dignity. And of course he says, you know, by the way, just so you understand, this is not a justification for the kind of slavery that was experienced in the South, and it's not trying to let Christians off the hook who participated in this kind of slavery in the West or who twisted scripture to try to justify it. I think that's really important that he mentions that. Here's the third point that he brings out. Just because slavery is mentioned and provisions are made for it doesn't mean that Scripture endorses it. It acknowledges, look, slavery's here. Here's how you protect slaves from the abuse and the stripping away of their rights. It was common in that time period. Uh, The humane laws that you encounter in the Torah were a big improvement over the laws of other ancient Near East nations. Fourth, Meyer says we need to remember that Israel was not God's ideal society. Israel came out of slavery. It was corrupt, it was broken like all the rest of us are. And the work for those people, it was a progressive work to redeem them. And it did, uh, there was different, a different kind of slavery and it was treated better, but it was still far from God's ideal of people that would be all the same and, and treat each other with respect. Uh, John Mark Reynolds, I like him a lot. Uh, if you can ever find material that he's written or hear him, he's a fascinating speaker. So Myers quotes Reynolds, Economic slavery is evil, but immediate abolition could have been a worse evil, possibly leading to violence, starvation, and total societal collapse. So do you see what he's saying there is that why didn't they just wave a magic wand and get rid of it immediately? That that could have produced even worse problems. So it became a gradual change based on right principles. And over time, that would have a better chance of getting good. Now, I like to think of it this way, that uh, if you change people one at a time through the gospel, that's going to change the society from the bottom up as opposed from the top down. Okay, here's the fifth point that Myers brings out. When it comes to the New Testament, Jesus wasn't silent about slavery. When he began his public ministry, do you remember that uh, sequence? That's in Luke 4. He stands up and he reads a passage from the Old Testament. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Now, what's he quoting? He's quoting Isaiah 61. And that seems to be dealing at that point in the Old Testament, dealing with literal captives, not just spiritual captives. And so, because we're not going to be bound to sin, our lives are going to change. Society is going to change. I like that a lot. Uh, it says in later times, the foundation led, uh, laid down the Old Testament and continued through the ministry of Christ, galvanized Christian opposition to chattel slavery. So it was Christians. I mean, think about William Wilberforce and others. It took a long time, unfortunately. But finally, uh, the inspiration came because of Jesus, and slavery did get abolished. So I'd like that. I think that's a, an interesting way to approach that topic. The other topic that he dealt with in this chapter is, well, isn't the Bible oppressive to women? And he says, you know, we take women's rights so much for granted today. He said, it's hard to, for us to realize how much of the Judeo-Christian worldview made them possible. 
the idea of human dignity. That has turned it around and allowed women to be treated as equally valuable to men in areas that are influenced by Christianity. That's not true everywhere, and it hasn't been true everywhere. So, it says, is the Bible inherently misogynistic, meaning disliking women? It says, well, take a look at the Old Testament. You might think, boy, it seems domineering, it seems unfair to women. But at the time, we have to look at the cultural context. At the time, the commands in the Old Testament provided women all sorts of protection and legal recourse even against men's anger and their pride and their lust and their jealousy. And Myers points out, even today, you look around the world, equal treatment for women, that's not happening everywhere. So Dawkins saying God is a misogynist, what he's doing is comparing the Bible to his notion of some kind of fantasy ideal state that doesn't exist. And frankly, as an atheist, he doesn't have any rational basis for that. How do you get a perfect state? In a fallen world, Meyer says, we shouldn't be asking why the, the Christian worldview isn't being lived perfectly, but that it seems to best describe the way the world should be. So we can see the Christian worldview gives unparalleled dignity to women. So he says, and I like this sentence, Jesus is good news for women. He, he goes back, he gives us a little history. What was it like to be a woman in the old days? Well, the Canaanites and the Amalekites, they were really abusive to women. What about the Greek and the Roman cultures? Well, there was a lot of female infanticide and a lot of abortion. Uh, the status of women there was low. Girls didn't get much education. They were married at puberty and often before. Uh, under Athenian law in, in Greece, a woman was classified as a child no matter how old she was. So she was the legal property of some man at all stages of her life. And a male could just divorce her by just ordering her out of the household. And the husband, the father, he's the one that had supreme, absolute power in Rome. Even when the kids are grown and the grandkids are grown, he could divorce the wife. He could, he could actually execute his children, have them executed. The Old Testament treats women a lot differently than other cultures at the time. I mean, if you go back to Genesis, it's men and women that both bear God's image. And that Levitical law business, it's, it's kind of boring for us to, <laughs> to read through today, but it provides all sorts of protection for women. And here's an example. Israelites weren't supposed to treat female prisoners of war as sex objects. They were either supposed to marry them or release them. That's in Deuteronomy 21. Um, in Jesus' ministry, women gained a stature that was amazing. I mean, think what he did. He healed women of diseases. He interacted with them. He extended forgiveness to a woman who had committed sexual sin. That was pretty progressive. Women followers supported his ministry. They were the last ones to leave the cross. They were the first ones at the tomb. He treated women with dignity. How about Paul? Well, he's attacked a for his perceived low view of women. You know, someday I'm going to have to do, uh, I've got a book on that called Women in the Maze. And uh, I think Paul's gotten some unfair attacks. But he often considered women co-workers in his ministry. Take a look at Acts 16 and Acts uh, 1 Corinthians 1 and Philippians 4 and Colossians 4. That was unprecedented. Women were just ignored at that time or shunned in, in any kind of religious conversation. He told husbands in Ephesians to love their wives just as Christ loved the church. Now think about that. Wow. What did Christ do for the church? He gave himself up. He died. He, had a, he was totally self-sacrificial. And he says that's what a husband is supposed to do. Now, he emphasized the gospel is good for all. In Galatians 3, he says in, in Jesus there's no group, 
Greek or no Jew. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female. You're all one. And Peter tells Christian husbands to treat their wives with honor. So as he wraps up this chapter, he says, is it any wonder that the ancient sources and modern historians agree that primary conversion to Christianity was far more prevalent among male, uh, females than males? Because it was such good news for women. More women became Christians than men. All right, well, that's pretty much the end of the, the chapter here. And so I'll end it at this point. But I like this book a lot, Understanding the Faith, A Survey of Christian Apologetics, all sorts of wonderful chapters. Uh, well, that's it, kind of a wrap-up for the book here, uh, this chapter anyway, Understanding the Faith. I plan to come back to it again and again because I like it a lot. Uh, here are some of the titles of the chapters we haven't done. Has, does the Bible have authority? Um, is claiming truth intolerant? Why is there evil and suffering? If Christianity is true, why do people walk away? And uh, so he's got plenty of good chapters there. I think you get a lot out of it. All right, well, thanks. Uh, we'll do another podcast soon, and uh, have a good day.